Chapter 19 of Triplanetary, first in the Lensman series by E. E. Doc Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Phil Chenevere. Chapter 19 Giants Meet. Check your blast, Fred. I think that I hear something trying to come through. Cleveland called out sharply. For days the Boise had torn through the illimitable reaches of empty space, and now the long vigil of the keen-eared listeners was to be ended. Rodebush cut off his power, and through the crackling roar of tube noise an almost inaudible voice made itself heard. All the help you can give us. Sams, Cleveland, Rodebush, anybody of Triplanetary who can hear me, listen. This is Costigan with Miss Marston and Captain Bradley, heading for where we think the sun is, from right ascension about six hours, declination about plus fourteen degrees. Distance unknown, but probably a good many light-years. Trace my call. One Nevian ship is overhauling us slowly. Another is coming toward us from the sun. We may or may not be able to dodge it. But we need all the help you can give us. Sams, Rodebush, Cleveland, anybody of Triplanetary. Endlessly the faint, faint voice went on, but Rodebush and Cleveland were no longer listening. Sensitive ultra-loops had been swung, and along the indicated line shot Triplanetary's super-ship at a velocity which she had never before even approached. The utterly incomprehensible, almost incalculable, velocity attained by inertialess matter driven through an almost perfect vacuum by the Boise's maximum projector blasts, a blast which could lift her stupendous normal tonnage against a gravity five times that of Earth, at the first frightful measure of that velocity the supership literally annihilated distance, while ahead of her the furiously driven spy-ray beam fanned out in quest of the three triplanetarians who were calling for help. "'Got any idea how fast we're going?' Rodebush demanded, glancing up for an instant from the observation plate. "'We should be able to see him, since we could hear him, and our range is certainly as great as anything he can have.' "'No, I can't figure velocity without any reliable data on how many atoms of matter exist per cubic meter out here.' Cleveland was staring at the calculator. It's constant, of course, at the value at which the friction of the medium is equal to our thrust. Incidentally, we can't hold it too long. We're running a temperature which shows that we're stepping along faster than anybody ever computed before. Also, it points out the necessity for something that none of us ever anticipated needing in an open space drive. Refrigerators or radiating wall shields or repellers or something of that sort. But to get back to our velocity, taking Throckmorton's estimates, it figures somewhere near the order of magnitude of ten to the twenty-seventh. Fast enough, anyway, so that you'd better bend an eye on that plate. Even after you see them, you won't know where they really are, because we don't know any of the velocities involved. Our own, theirs, or that of the beam, and we may be right on top of them. Or if we happen to be outrunning the beam, we won't see them at all. That makes it nice piloting. How are you going to handle things when we get there? Lock to them and take them aboard if we're in time. If not, if they are fighting already, there they are. The picture of the speedster's control room flashed upon the speaker. Hi, Fritz. Hi, Cleve. Welcome to our city. Where are you? 
We don't know, Cleveland snapped back, and we don't know where you are either. Can't figure anything without data. I see you're still breathing air. Where are the Nevians? How much time have we got yet? Not enough, I'm afraid. By the looks of things, they will be within range of us in a couple of hours, and you haven't even touched our detector screen yet. A couple of hours? In his relief, Cleveland shouted the words, That's time to burn. We can be just about out of the galaxy in that. He broke off at a yell from Rotobush. Broadcast, Spud! Broadcast! The physicist had cried, as Costigan's image had disappeared utterly from his plate. He cut off the Boise's power, stopping her instantaneously in mid-space, but the connection had been broken. Costigan could not possibly have heard the orders to change his beam signal to a broadcast so that they could pick it up, nor would it have done any good if he had heard and had obeyed. So immeasurably great had been their velocity that they had flashed past the speedster and were now unknown thousands or millions of miles beyond the fugitives they had come so far to help, far beyond the range of any possible broadcast. But Cleveland understood instantly what had happened. He now had a little data upon which to work, and his hands flew over the keys of the calculator. Blast back at maximum seventeen seconds, he directed crisply. Not exact, of course, but that will put us close enough so that we can find him with our detectors. For the calculated seventeen seconds, the supership retraced her path at the same awful speed with which she had come so far. The blast expired and there, plainly limbed upon the observation plates, was the Nevian speedster. As a computer, you're good, Cleve, Rodebush applauded. So close that we can't use the neutralizers to catch him. If we use one dyne of drive, we'll overshoot a million kilometers before I could snap the switch. And yet he's so far away, and going so fast, that if we keep our inertia on, it'll take all day at full blast to overtake. No, wait a minute. We could never catch him. Cleveland was puzzled. What to do? Shunt in a potentiometer? No, we don't need it. Rodebush turned to the transmitter. Costigan, we are going to take hold of you with a very light tractor. A tracer, really. And whatever you do, don't cut it, or we can't reach you in time. It may look like a collision, but it won't be. We'll just touch you without even a jar. A tractor? Inertialess? Cleveland wondered. Sure, why not? Rodebush set up the beam at its absolute minimum of power and threw in the switch. While hundreds of thousands of miles separated the two vessels and the attractor was exerting the least effort of which it was capable, yet the supership leaped toward the smaller craft at a pace which covered the intervening distance in almost no time at all. So rapidly were the objectives enlarging upon the plates that the automatic focusing devices could scarcely function rapidly enough to keep them in place. Cleveland flinched involuntarily and seized his armrests in a spasmodic clutch as he watched this, the first inertialess space approach, and even Rodebush, who knew better than anyone else what to expect, held his breath and swallowed hard at the unbelievable rate at which the two vessels were rushing together. And if these two, who had rebuilt the super-ship, could hardly control themselves, what of the three in the speedsters who knew nothing whatever of the wonder-craft's potentialities? 
Clio, staring into the plate with Costigan, uttered one piercing shriek as she sank her fingers into his shoulders. Bradley swore a mighty deep space oath and braced himself against certain annihilation. Costigan stared for an instant, unable to believe his eyes. Then, in spite of the warning, his hand darted toward the studs which would cut the beam. Too late. Before his flying fingers could reach the buttons, the Boise was upon them, had struck the speedster in direct central impact. Moving at the full measure of her unthinkable velocity, though the supership was in the instant of impact, yet the most delicate recording instruments of the speeder could not detect the slightest shock as the enormous globe struck the comparatively tiny torpedo and clung to it, accommodating instantaneously and effortlessly her own terrific pace to that of the smaller and infinitely slower craft. Cleo sobbed in relief, and Costigan, one arm around her, sighed hugely. "'Hey, you space lugs!' he cried. "'Glad to see you, and all that. But you might as well kill a man outright as scare him to death.' "'So that's the super-ship, huh? Some ship!' "'Hiya, Murph! Hi, Spud!' came from the speaker. "'Murph? Spud? How come?' Cleo, practically recovered now, glanced upward questioningly. It was plain that she did not quite know whether or not to like the nicknames which the rescuers were calling her Conway. My middle name is Murphy, so they've called me things like that ever since I was so high. Costigan indicated a length of approximately twelve inches. And now you'll probably live long enough, I hope, to hear me called a lot worse stuff than that. Don't talk that way. We're safe now, Con, Spud. It's nice that they like you so much. But they would, of course. She snuggled even closer, and both listened to what Rodebush was saying. Realize myself that it would look so bad. It scared me as much as it did anybody. Yes, this is it. She really works. Thanks more than somewhat to Conway Costigan, by the way. But you had better transfer. If you'll get your things, things is good, Costigan laughed, and Cleo giggled sunnily. We've made so many transfers already that what you see is all we've got, Bradley exclaimed. We'll bring ourselves, and we'll hurry. That Nevian is coming up fast. Is there anything on this ship you fellows want? Costigan asked. There may be, but we haven't any locks big enough to let her inside, and we haven't time to study her now. You might leave her controls in neutral so that we can calculate her position if we should want her later on. All right. The three armor-clad figures stepped into the Boise's open lock, the tractor beam was cut off, and the speedster flashed away from the now stationary super-ship. "'Better let formalities go for a while,' Captain Bradley interrupted the general introductions taking place. "'I was scared out of nine years' growth when I saw you coming at us, and maybe I've still got the humps. But that Nevian is coming up fast.' And if you don't already know it, I can tell you that she's no light cruiser. That's so, too, Costigan agreed. Have you fellows got enough stuff so that you think you can take him? You've got the legs on him, anyway. You can certainly run if you want to. Run? Cleveland laughed. We have a bone of our own to pick with that ship. We licked her to a standstill once, until we burned out a set of generators. And since we got them fixed, we've been chasing her all over space. 
We were chasing her when we picked up your call. See there? She's doing the running. The Nevian was running, in truth. Her commander had seen and had recognized the great vessel which had flashed out of nowhere to the rescue of the three fugitives from Nevia, and, having once been at grips with that vengeful super-dreadnought, he had little stomach for another encounter. Therefore his side-thrust was now being exerted in the opposite direction. He was frankly trying to put as much distance as possible between himself and Triplanetary's formidable warship. In vain. A light tractor was clamped on, and the Boise flashed up the close range, before Rodebush restored her inertia, and Cleveland brought the two vessels relatively to rest by increasing gradually his tractor's pull. And this time the Nevian could not cut the tractor. Again that shearing plane of force bit into it and tore at it, but it neither yielded nor broke. The rebuilt generators of number four were designed to carry the load, and they carried it. And again Triplanetary's every mighty weapon was brought into play. The cans were thrown, ultra and infra-beams were driven, the furious macro-beam gnawed hungrily at the Nevian's defenses, and one by one those defenses went down. In desperation the enemy commander threw his every generator behind a polycyclic screen, only to see Cleveland's even more powerful drill bore relentlessly through it. After that puncturing the end came soon. A secondary SX-7 beam was now in place on Mighty Ten's inner rings, and one fierce blast blew a hole completely through the Nevian cruiser. Into that hole entered Adlington's terrific bombs and their gruesome fellows, and where they entered life departed. All defenses vanished, and under the blasts of the Boise's batteries, now unopposed, the metal of the Nevian vessel exploded into a widely spreading cloud of vapor, sparkling vapor with perhaps here and there a droplet or two of material which had been only liquefied. So passed the sister ship, and Rodebush turned his plates upon the vessel of Narado. But that highly intelligent amphibian had seen all that had occurred. He had long since given over the pursuit of the speedster and he did not rush in to do hopeless battle beside his fellow Nevians against the Tellurians. His analytical detectors had written down every detail of every weapon and of every screen employed, and even while prodigious streamers of force were raving out from his vessel, breaking her terrific progress, and swinging her around in an immense circle back toward far Nevia, his scientists and mechanics were doubling and redoubling the power of his already titanic installations to match and, if possible, to overmatch those of Triplanetary's super-dreadnought. Do we kill him now, or do we let him suffer a while longer? Costigan demanded. I don't think so yet, Rodebush replied. Would you cleave? Not yet, said Cleveland grimly, reading the other's thought and agreeing with it. Let him pilot us to Nevia. We might not be able to find it without a guide. While we're at it, we want to so pulverize that crowd that if they never come near the Solarian system again, they'll think it's twenty minutes too soon. 
Thus it was that the Boise, increasing her few dynes of driving force at a rate just sufficient to match her quarry's acceleration, pursued the Nevian ship. Apparently exerting every effort, she never came quite within range of the fleeing raider, yet never was she so far behind that the Nevian spaceship was not in clear register upon her observation plates. Nor was Narado alone in strengthening his vessel. Costigan knew well and respected highly the Nevian scientist captain, and at his suggestion much time was spent in reinforcing the super-ship's armament to the iron-driven limit of theoretical and mechanical possibility. In mid-space, however, the Nevian slowed down. What gives? Rodebush demanded of the group at large. Not turnover time already, is it? No. Cleveland shook his head. Not for at least a day yet. Cooking up something on Nevia is my guess, Costigan put in. If I know that lizard at all, he wired ahead. Specifications for the welcoming committee. We're getting there too fast, so he's stalling. Check? Check, Rodebush agreed. But there's no use of us waiting. If you're sure you know which one of those stars up ahead is Nebia, do you, Cleve? Definitely. The only other thing is, then, shall we blow them out of the ether first? You might try, Costigan remarked. That is, if you're damn sure that you can run if you have to. Huh? Run? demanded Rodebush. Just that. It's spelled R-U-N, run. I know those freaks better than you do. Believe me, Fritz, they've got what it takes. Could be at that, Rodebush admitted. We'll play it safe. The Boise leaped upon the Nevian, every weapon aflame. But, as Costigan had expected, Narado's vessel was completely ready for any emergency. And, unlike her sister ship, she was manned by scientists well-versed in the fundamental theory of the weapons with which they fought. Beams, rods, and lances of energy flamed and flared. Planes and pencils cut, slashed and stabbed. Defensive screens glowed redly or flashed suddenly into intensely brilliant coruscating incandescence. Crimson opacity struggled sullenly against violet curtain of annihilation. Material projectiles and torpedoes were launched under full-beam control, only to be exploded harmlessly in mid-space, to be blasted into nothingness, or to disappear innocuously against impenetrable polycyclic screens. Even Cleveland's drill was ineffective. Both vessels were equipped completely with iron-driven mechanisms. Both were manned by scientists capable of wringing the highest possible measure of power from their installations. Neither could harm the other. The Boise flashed away, reached Nebia in minutes. Down into the crimson atmosphere she dropped, down toward the city which Costigan knew was Narado's home port. Hold up a bit, Costigan cautioned sharply. There's something down there that I don't like. As he spoke, there shot upward from the city a multitude of flashing balls. The Nevians had mastered the secret of the explosive of the fishes of the greater deeps, and were launching it in a veritable storm against the Tellurian visitor. Those? asked Rodebush calmly. The detonating balls of destruction were literally annihilating even the atmosphere beyond the polycyclic screen, but that barrier was scarcely affected. No, that! Costigan pointed out 
a hemispherical dome which, redly translucent, surrounded a group of buildings towering high above their neighbors. Neither those high towers nor those screens were there the last time I was in this town. Narado was stalling for time, and that's what they're doing down there. That's all those fireballs are for. Good sign, too. They aren't ready for us yet. We'd better take them while the taking's good. If they were ready for us, our play would be to get out of here while we're all in one piece. Narado had been in touch with the scientists of his city. He had been instructing them in the construction of converters and generators of such weight and power that they could crush even the defenses of the super-ship. The mechanisms were not, however, ready. The entire unsuspected possibilities of speed inherent in absolute inertialessness had not entered into Narado's calculations. "'Better drop a few cans down onto that dome, fellows,' Rodebush suggested to his gunners. "'We can't,' came Adlington's instant reply. "'No use trying it. That's a polycyclic screen. Can you drill it? If you can, I've got a real bomb here, that special we built, that will do the trick if you can protect it from them until it gets down into the water.' "'I'll try it,' Cleveland answered at a nod from the physicist. I couldn't drill Narado's polycyclics, but I couldn't use any momentum on him. Couldn't ram him. He fell back with my thrust. But that screen down there can't back away from us, so maybe I can work on it. Get your special ready. Hang on, everybody. The Boise looped upward, and from an altitude of miles, drove straight down through the storm of force balls, beams, and shells. A dive checked abruptly, as the hollow tube of energy, which was Cleveland's drill, snarled savagely down ahead of her and struck the shielding hemisphere with a grinding, lightning-splitting shock. As it struck, backed by all the enormous momentum of the plunging spaceship and driven by the full power of her prodigious generators, it bored in, clawing and gouging viciously through the tissues of that rigid and unyielding barrier of pure energy. Then, mighty drill and plunging mass against iron-driven wall, eye-tearing and furiously spectacular warfare was waged. Well, it was for Triplanetary that day that its super-ship carried ample supplies of allotropic iron. Well, it was that her originally gargantuan converters and generators had been doubled and quadrupled in power on the long Nevian way, for the ocean-girdled fortress was powered to withstand any conceivable assault. But the Boise's power and momentum were now inconceivable, and every watt and every dyne was solidly behind that hellishly flaming, that voraciously tearing, that irresistibly ravening cylinder of energy incredible. Through the Nevian shield that cylinder gnawed its frightful way, and down its protecting length there drove Adlington's special bomb. Special it was, indeed. So great the girth that it could barely pass through the central orifice of Tin's mighty projector, so heavily charged with sensitized atomic iron that its detonation upon any planet would not have been considered for an instant if that planet's integrity meant anything to its attackers. Down the shielding pipe of force the special screamed under full propulsion, and beneath the surface of Nevia's ocean it plunged. "'Cut!' 
yelled Adlington, and as the scintillating drill expired, the bomber pressed his detonating switch. For moments, the effect of the explosion seemed unimportant. A dull, low rumble was all that was heard of a concussion that jarred Red Nevia to her very center, and all that could be seen was a slow heaving of the water. But that heaving did not cease. Slowly, so slowly, it seemed to the observers now high in the heavens, the waters rose up and parted, revealing a vast chasm blown deep into the ocean's rocky bed. Higher and higher the lazy mountains of water reared, effortlessly to pick up, to smash, to grind into fragments, and finally to toss aside every building, every structure, every scrap of material substance pertaining to the whole Nevian city. Flattened out, driven backward for miles, the buffeted waters were pressed, leaving exposed bare ground and broken rock where once had been the ocean's busy floor. Tremendous blasts of incandescent gas raved upward, jarring even the enormous mass of the super-ship poised so high above the site of the explosion. Then the displaced millions of tons of water rushed to make even more complete the already total destruction of the city. The raging torrents poured into that yawning cavern, filled it and piled mountainously above it, receding and piling up again and again, causing tidal waves which swept a full half of Nevia's mighty watery globe. That city was silenced forever. My God! Cleveland was the first to break the awed, the stunned silence. He licked his lips, but we had to do, and at that it's not as bad as what they did to Pittsburgh. They would have evacuated all except military personnel. Of course. What next? asked Rodebush. Look around, I suppose, to see if they have any more. Oh, no, Conway, no, don't let them. Cleo was sobbing openly. I'm going to my room and crawl under the bed. I'll see that sight all the rest of my life. Steady, Cleo. Costigan's arm tightened around her. We'll have to look, but we won't find any more. One, if they could have finished it, would have been enough. Again and again the Boise circled the world. No more super-powered installations were being built, and surprisingly enough the Nevians made no demonstration of hostility. I wonder why, Rodebush mused. Of course we aren't attacking them either, but you think— Do you suppose that they are waiting for Narado? Probably. Costigan paused and thought. We'd better wait for him, too. We can't leave things this way. But if we can't force engagement, a stalemate— Cleveland's voice was troubled. We'll do something, Costigan declared. This thing has got to be settled, some way or other, before we leave here. First, try talking. I've got an idea that— Anyway, it can't do any harm, and I know that he can hear and understand you. Narado arrived. Instead of attacking, his ship hung quietly poised, a mile or two away from the equally undemonstrative Boise. Rodebush directed a beam. Captain Narado, I am Rodebush of Triplanetary. What do you wish to do about this situation? I wish to talk to you. The Nevian's voice came clearly from the speaker. You are, I now perceive, a much higher form of life than any of us had thought possible, 
a form perhaps as high in evolution as our own. It is a pity that we did not take the time for a full meeting of minds when we first neared your planet, so that much life, both Tellurian and Nevian, might have been spared. But what is past cannot be recalled. As reasoning beings, however, you will see the futility of continuing a combat in which neither is capable of winning victory over the other. You may, of course, destroy more of our Nevian cities, in which case I should be compelled to go and destroy similarly upon your earth, but to reasoning minds such a course would be sheerest stupidity. Rodebush cut the communicator beam. Does he mean it? he demanded of Costigan. It sounds perfectly reasonable, but— But fishy, Cleveland broke in. Altogether too reasonable to be true. He means it. He means every word of it, Costigan assured his fellows. I had an idea that he would take it that way. That's the way they are. Reasonable, passionless. Funny, they lack a lot of things that we have, but they've got stuff that I wish more of us Tellurians had, too. Give me the plate. I'll talk for Triplanetary. And the beam was restored. Captain Nerado, he greeted the Nevian commander. Having been with you and among your people, I know that you mean what you say and that you speak for your race. Similarly, I believe that I can speak for the Triplanetary Council, the governing body of three of the planets of our solar system, in saying that there is no need for any more conflict between our peoples. I also was compelled by circumstances to do certain things which I now wish could be undone. But as you have said, the past is past. Our two races have much to gain from each other by friendly exchanges of materials and of ideas, while we can expect nothing except mutual extermination if we elect to continue this warfare. I offer you the friendship of Triplanetary. Will you release your screens and come aboard to sign a treaty? My screens are down. I will come. Rodebush likewise cut off his power, although somewhat apprehensively, and a Nevian lifeboat entered the main airlock of the Boise. Then, at a table in the control room of Triplanetary's first supership, there was written the first intersystemic treaty. Upon one side were the three Nevians, amphibious, cone-headed, loop-necked, scaly, four-legged things, to us monstrosities. Upon the other were human beings, air-breathing, round-headed, short-necked, smooth-bodied, two-legged creatures equally monstrous to the fastidious Nevians. Yet each of these representatives of the two races so different felt respect for the other race increase within him minute by minute as the conversation went on. The Nevians had destroyed Pittsburgh, but Adlington's bomb had blown an important Nevian city completely out of existence. One Nevian vessel had wiped out a triplanetarian fleet, but Costigan had depopulated one Nevian city, had seriously damaged another, and had beamed down many Nevian ships. Therefore, loss of life and material damage could be balanced off. The Solarian system was rich in iron, to which the Nevians were welcome. Red Nevia possessed abundant stores of substances which, upon Earth, were either rare or of vital importance, or both. Therefore commerce was to be encouraged. The Nevians had knowledges and skills unknown to earthly science, but were entirely ignorant of many things commonplace to us. 
therefore interchange of students and of books was highly desirable, and so on. Thus was signed the Triplanetario Nevian Treaty of Eternal Peace. Nerado and his two companions were escorted ceremoniously to their vessel, and the Boise took off inertialess for Earth, bearing the good news that the Nevian menace was no more. Cleo, now a hardened spacehound, immune even to the horrible nausea of inertialessness, wriggled lithely in the curve of Costigan's arm and laughed up at him. You can talk all you want to, Conway, Murphy, Spud, Costigan, but I don't like them the least little bit. They give me goosebumps all over. I suppose that they are really estimable folks, talented, cultured, and everything, but just the same. I'll bet that it will be a long, long time before anybody on Earth will really, truly like them. End of chapter 19 End of the book Triplanetary, first in the Lensman series, by E. E. Doc Smith This recording was by Phil Chenevere in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, September and October 2011